0: Sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, thank you for uh, this beautiful promise that we read in these words. And uh, we uh, pray that you would uh, inspire our hearts, of how abundantly good you are, and uh, that you would uh, use these words to encourage us, to strengthen us, and uh, above all, to lead us to our Savior, Jesus, um, that we might behold uh, his face in beauty and glory, and uh, that we would trust him, we would obey and follow him. So we ask this uh, in the Holy Spirit, in Christ's name, amen. 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 You may be seated. Well, today we are uh, looking at really one of the most profound and beautiful passages in the, in the whole Bible. It's a, it's a description of the new creation, the new creation in the age to come when God uh, makes all things new. And a couple of weeks ago uh, in the sermon, when, when we were studying Revelation, I mentioned uh, that it's very common for people, both uh, for Christians and for non Christians, to think that the Bible's vision of history is that things are going to get worse and worse uh, over time. And at the end of history, basically, God's going to destroy the universe. Uh, But if you believe in Jesus, uh, you will have eternal life, and you'll go to another place, not this place, but to a spiritual place, and you'll spend forever in that spiritual place called heaven. And it's kind of like the world is like the Titanic and we're all watching it sink and it's basically going to sink and Jesus is a lifeboat that you get on to just get away from the sinking ship. And in fact, uh, you might read this passage I just read and think, well, that seems to be exactly what this passage is saying. Look at verse one, how it says, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And you might read that and say, well, it seems pretty clear that God is going to annihilate the universe, the, the earth and the heavens and the sea, and, uh, and then he's going to make a new one out of nothing. Well, as we go along, um, I'll show you why I don't think that's really what's going on here. Uh, but just to start, let's just take, for example, that expression, a new heaven. We've been uh, studying Revelation together for the last three summers. I know that's a lot to process over three summers. But as you read through Revelation, you you get to the end and say, well, have we seen a new heaven coming in Revelation? And well, when you go back to Revelation chapter 4, when we first appear in heaven, there are all these angels that are sitting on 24 thrones, and they take off their crowns and say, we're not in charge anymore. And Jesus, who is a human... Uh, ascends to the throne and says, okay, now there's a new situation here. The angels aren't in charge. A human is now in charge. And so there's a change that's happening in heaven. Then you go a little farther. You come to Revelation chapter 12, and it says, oh, Satan was in heaven. He's been cast out of heaven. So Satan's no longer in heaven. And then you get to Revelation 15, and there were 144,000 of the first martyrs in the early church that were martyred for their faith. And they're now in heaven. And we find out later in Revelation 20 that they are now seated on those thrones that the angels were seated on with Jesus, and they're reigning with him. And so basically all of Revelation, the whole book of Revelation, is about God making a new heavens. The whole situation in heaven has changed, and the new heaven has resulted in a transformation in the earth as well and so the new heaven is not about destroying heaven as a place it's about transforming it and it's primarily about who is ruling and leading and governing in heaven that's the big change that has happened and uh, it's the same with the whole creation in the present evil age the bible says who's ruling the world is satan sin and death But then, in the age to come, Jesus will put all his enemies under his feet, and this creation will be renewed and transformed, and it's in a renewed and transformed creation, that is where we will spend endless ages in God's presence. So this is absolutely a wild, incredible vision of what God intends to do in the future, and it's a promise to those of us whose trust is in Christ. And so today, um, we're going to talk about the new creation. And uh, basically, I want to make three claims from uh, this passage in Revelation 21 about the new creation. This is what they are. The first, the new creation is the renewal of the old creation. Second, the new creation is a city. And third, the new creation is the marriage of heaven and earth. Okay? So the new creation is a renewal of the old creation. It's a city. And it is the marriage of heaven and earth. And this is the inheritance that if you put your trust in Jesus Christ, you belong to Jesus Christ, this is your inheritance. And God wants you to know how rich your inheritance, how beautiful it is to give you hope, give you encouragement, give you strength this morning. So three, three points on the new creation. And the first is this, that the new creation is the renewal of the old creation. The new creation is the renewal of the old creation. And you can see uh, again how this passage begins in verse 1. It says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. Now, the reason I say that this new creation is not a destruction of the old creation, but a renewal of the old creation, is because it turns out in the Bible there's already been a new heavens and a new earth. That language of new heavens and a new earth, it's already happened. And it's back in Isaiah. If you have your Bible, you can turn to Isaiah chapter 5. Isaiah is basically right in the middle of the Bible. So if you go to the middle of the Bible, is Psalms. And if you just go to the right a little bit, it's, it's just to the right of the Psalms, a few books. And if you, if you go to Isaiah chapter 65, very similar language is used in Isaiah 65 as Revelation 21. Except in Isaiah 65, it's talking about when the people of Israel returned from their exile in Babylon. And uh, this is what it says. This is Isaiah 65, verse 17. It says, For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth. And the former things shall, be remembered, uh, shall not be remembered or come into mind. So Isaiah 65 says there's going to be new heavens and a new earth. And you might think, well, maybe Isaiah is just talking about the same thing that Revelation is talking about. But if you read just a few verses later in Isaiah 65 to verse 20, You'll notice that in the new heavens and new earth that Isaiah describes, people still die. Look at verse 20. No more shall there be in it an infant who lives but a few days, or an old man who does not fill out his days. For the young man shall die a hundred years old. So in Isaiah, when there's a new heavens and a new earth, it's just an age of peace where people live to a good old age. Revelation is saying something very different. Revelation 21 says in verse 4, look at the new heavens and new earth in Revelation 21 says uh, verse 4, he says he will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. These are different new creations. And what we learn from Isaiah is that when God creates a new heavens and a new earth, it's not an annihilation of his good creation or the cosmos. It's that the former things have passed away. And what are the former things that have passed away in Revelation 21? It's tears, death, mourning, and crying. The new creation is a renewal of the old creation. And I'll tell you why that's uh, significant. You know, many of of us here have had hard lives. Maybe you're here this morning and you say, you know, my, my life has been hard. Like, things just have not gone my way and it has felt like trial upon trial, one after the other. And if you've had a hard life, you might look at the world around you and say, you know, like, this world has the potential to be such a great place. And being human has the potential of being such a great experience. You know, it's like, you, you have being human, it's like you have this mind and you, you, you know, the world is beautiful and I have these eyeballs where I can look out at the world and see it. And I'm so amazed to even exist. I should be so grateful to even exist and have a body and be able to live in God's world. And so we say, you know, if there wasn't sin, if I could just love God and obey God, which is very hard for me to do, and if I could love people and if other people could love me, this would be such a great experience. This world has so much potential. What this passage is saying is that all that we dream this creation could be, it one day will become. God does not scrap his good creation. He brings it to the end for which he always intended it. God is going to transform his creation. He's going to scrap his creation. He's going to renew it. And actually, you know, God does this renewal on a small scale. And actually, this is language the Bible uses in, uh, in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, the Apostle Paul says that when you become a Christian and your life changes, you are a new creation. And you might say, oh, well, so individual people become new creations, just as the whole, like, heaven and earth is going to become new. That happens to individual people. And when you become a new creation in Christ, does that mean that God just annihilates you and then starts over and starts from scratch? No, that's not what he does. It means that your old life has died and a new life has come. And I, you know, I remember when I, when I became a Christian, I had, a, had lived a very selfish and destructive life. And then I, I became a Christian, and, and uh, my mom, when she was talking to someone about me, I remember she said, you know, yeah, Nate, he, he was living a very bad life, and then he became a Christian. He's a radically different person, but he's still the same old Nate. And I always thought it a great description. Ra- How can you be a radically different person and still the same old Nate at the same time? And it's because God did not destroy my personality in order to create me new. He, um, he actually made me who he originally intended me to be. I was finally becoming my personality and, and who I really was. And uh, it was a renewal of the old creation. And, you know, it's, it's the same with Jesus. The Bible says that Jesus' resurrection, when Jesus was raised from the dead, he was the first fruits of a new creation. He was the beginning of the new heavens and the new earth, began when Jesus rose from the dead. And yet, when Jesus rose from the dead, he wasn't like this brand new person. He said to his disciples, look at the scars on my hand, the scars on my side. There was still the remnant of the whole life that he'd lived, and even the crucifixion that he'd had was carried. There was a continuity and uh and so if we want to know about what the new creation's like, we look at Jesus, which is actually helpful in explaining one thing about this passage in Revelation twenty-one. I know some of you have seen that phrase where it says that the sea will be no more. And if you like sailing or kayaking, you might say, So are you saying there's no ocean in in the new creation? And Well, um, I don't don't think that's what it's saying, because on the one hand, in in the book of Revelation in the Bible, the, the, the image of the sea is symbolic for the Gentile nations of the world. So the people of Israel were the land, and the nations of the world are the sea. And so what's happening in the new kingdom is all the outside people from God's people are being brought in, so there's no division between the Jews and the Gentiles anymore. And so the fact that there's no sea is just talking about God incorporating the nations into his kingdom. But I also think that if you want to know what the new creation is like, the best place to look is to look at the resurrected Jesus. When Jesus was raised from the dead, he is a small picture of the new creation. And what is one of the things that Jesus did when he was raised from the dead? He had a breakfast of fish on the beach with his disciples. And if you want to know what life in the new creation is going to be like, that little story, he ate fish. And how do you eat fish if there's no ocean? So that's why I think there's still an ocean in the new creation. Jesus' death and resurrection did not mean that he was annihilated. What this passage is saying is that creation itself will pass through a kind of death and resurrection. And that's what it means in verse 5 when it says, He who is seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. The new creation is a renewal, not a destruction of the old creation. Now I just want you to imagine uh, just kind of a thought experiment. For a moment. Um, imagine what human life, human culture, you know, in, in any culture, in any ethnic group, what it would be like if there was no human sin in death. You know, humans already do pretty amazing things. You know, we build these buildings and airplanes and we build roads and we have, you know, elaborate economic systems and there's music and there's all kinds of food and and there's arts and there's stories. There's all these things. And yet we're like fighting with each other and competing with each other and trying to show off. Now imagine that there wasn't uh, competition, but we actually were, were all using our gifts to help one another, to glorify God, Like, what would we create? What technology? What music? What kind of cities? Imagine a city where there was no sin and we all cooperatively worked together for God's glory. What kind of creations could humans make? I mean, it's incredible just to even think about. And so that thought experiment, I think, leads us to a second point that this passage tells us is not only that the new creation is going to be a renewal of the old creation. it's Finally, the creation is going to become what God intended it to be. But the second thing is that the new creation is a city. The new creation is a city. And that might be surprising to some of you. You might think that the last place that you want to spend eternity is in a city. And you say, cities are so filled with sin and violence and or maybe you're just like the traffic you know i hate going to seattle because there's everyone it's all crammed in and just the whole energy of the city is so kind of stressful i hate i hate going to city maybe that's you and so you might think you know when i picture the age to come i picture myself with 40 acres and a garden and it's always summer in whatcom county that's that's basically what i'm picturing well what you're basically saying is that you hope that the age to come will be a return to the garden of eden But Revelation is very clear that that's not the direction of history. The new creation is a city. And you see the urban vision of this passage in verse 2, how it says, And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven uh, from God. The end of history is that the heavenly city, there's a city in heaven, becomes an earthly city. And uh, so the future is urban. It's not rural, and, or maybe we should qualify that. We're gonna actually see in a couple of weeks that it's, it's not that you won't have a garden. It's a garden city. The, the Garden of Eden is transformed into a garden city. And, uh, and so there's a fusion of the rural and the urban. And so, for the urban planners out there, is a beautiful vision of of neighbors and people living together cooperatively. But there's still, you know, city parks and there's nature is somehow bring, being brought together. And so, uh, why don't? But why don't we want heaven to be a city? And usually, it's because there are people in cities, and people are stressful, and that's why we all like to go backpacking. And you you can hopefully go up to Mount Baker, Yellow Astribute Butte, or or chain lakes, and when you go up there, you hope that no one else is going up there because the whole point is to get away. That's when you feel at peace, is getting away from people. But that's not what the Lord has for us. God's vision is for humans to have neighbors who love each other. And cities are filled with neighbors. But it's not like the cities of the world. There's a major transformation that God does not tolerate the evil of human beings in his city any longer. You see those uh, really piercing words of verse 8. But for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. The only way a city becomes like the vision of this passage is if these sins are no more. And so, you know, of course, there are people who've committed these sins that have come to Christ for forgiveness, and he's forgiven them. But if we persist in these kinds of sins and say, no, I don't want to follow Christ, I don't want my life to be changed, then he says, we can have no part in this city. And what would a city be like where selfishness and violence and sexual immorality were no more? A city would be amazing. It would be an amazing place to be. And, you know, in the ancient world, uh, the polis, this is a, the Greek word for the city, was considered the ideal for human life because it was a place where human beings would come together and they would they would use their gifts. And, uh, and you know, that's where the language that we get in the Bible of the church is being a body. You know, ancient philosophers talked about the body politic. A city was, was like a group of people who've come together to use their gifts to serve one another and order their lives together. And that's why the Apostle Paul says, basically, we are a city. When a church comes together, we all use our gifts to support one another to be a city. And the history of cities in the Bible is really interesting because on the one hand, you could read through the Bible and say, well, the Bible is very anti-city. I mean, there's this whole list of evil cities. There's Nineveh and Babylon and Rome and eventually Jerusalem, these dark places that are just, um, you know, violent and sexually immoral and godless. Um, And so you might think that God hates cities. But Christianity is actually an urban faith. If you read through the book of Acts, you see that the, the apostles did not go to the countryside to share the gospel. You know, they didn't all say, let's start a commune and go somewhere where we, everyone will just leave us alone, and we can just do our thing apart from the world. He, the apostles went right into the middle of the life of the world. They went to Corinth. They went to Ephesus. They went to Rome. Uh, they went to Athens, and they said, this is where God wants us to bring the gospel, and over the next three centuries, Christianity actually largely grew in cities. And by the time Constantine uh, became the emperor, Constantine was the first Christ, uh, Christian uh, emperor. The Roman Empire was really actually only about ten to fifteen percent Christian. You know, some of you have maybe heard the reason Constantine became a Christian was because uh, you know the, the empire was basically Christian. It was just you know uh, uh, politically advantageous for him to become a Christian. That's not true. It was, it, Christians were still a minority, but in the cities, the cities were 50% Christian. Christianity was an urban movement. And many of us in our cu- culture might think, you know, I want to get away from the cities. They are so lost. They're so godless. And let's all start a commune off by ourselves and get away from the godless people. That's not the model of the Bible. God sent Jonah to Nineveh. God sent his people into the heart of Babylon for 70 years. He says, I want you to have children there. I want you to start families. And I want your children to marry with each other and have more children. And I want you to you know, start vineyards and businesses and have an influence on that city. I want you to grow in the middle of that city. And he sent the apostle Paul to Rome. And he sent us to Bellingham. That's why he's placed us here. God changes cities And we should pray that God would change our city. Our city needs to change. Now I'll say it's very possible uh, to hear what I've said so far about the new creation. That on the one hand, you know, it's a renewal of the old creation. He doesn't scrap nature and all the beautiful things about nature. We'll actually get to enjoy this world as the way that we were intended to enjoy it. And the new, and that the new creation is a city where humans will work together to build this gorgeous and complex culture where that glorifies God and we all work together to use our gifts to make something amazing. And you say, wow, that'd be so incredible to be part of this. But what's interesting is that actually neither of those things are the best thing about the new creation. It's not the renew- renewal of nature or the, the beautiful cultural city that will be. N- neither of those things are the best things. And that leads to our final point, is that the new creation is the marriage of heaven and earth. So the new creation is a renewal of the old creation. The new creation is a city. And the new creation is the marriage of heaven and earth. And what I mean by that is that heaven and earth are are two places in God's creation. Heaven is where God dwells and earth is where humans dwell. And God's plan has always been that heaven and earth would become one place. It would be a marriage of heaven and earth. And you can see the language of a marriage in this passage here in verse 2. Where it says, and I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And in fact, this verse is basically telling us the whole purpose of marriage. You know, We might, we might think, well, the reason I get married is for my personal fulfillment. And, uh, and that's part of that. God does not want us to be alone. And so, but ultimately, marriage is a picture of the deep reality of human history that, that heaven and earth are going to become one that God is coming to dwell among his people. And the future is not just a renewed creation or a thriving city, it is an intimate love. And and at the heart of this passage is this greatest promise. There in verse three, that says, and I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God.'" The greatest gift of the new creation is the intimate presence of God himself. And some of you would say, you know, I'm a, I'm a Christian. I, I believe the Bible. I come to church. I want to follow God. I want to obey him. But if I was honest with you, I don't necessarily feel close to God. And I hear other people talking about feeling God's presence in their life. And I just don't feel that. And there's a distance. And I feel like the Bible is acknowledging that's a part of our life right now is there's a distance to God, but there's coming a time where he will dwell among us. It says in the next chapter that we will worship him and we will see his face. We will see him intimately. I have to tell you, knowing God intimately, there is no human experience more thrilling than the possibility of living through an encounter with the living God. You know, just uh, a couple weeks ago, some of the men in our church went on a solitude retreat to Susha Island. We took some boats out there and we spent a couple nights. And uh, we all went away for a whole day to, uh, you know, just spend time reading and praying. And so I I found this little place. It was a little grassy area at the top of a cliff. It had this strange tree coming out of it. And it just looked out on the the sound and and Orcas Island and the sky. It was a beautiful day, and, you know, I was just looking at the ocean, just thinking how incredibly big it is. You know, you know when you have that thought, when you're like, how many gallons of water are in the ocean? You know, it's just like so many gallons. It's like, this is so much water. It's just so big, and this is nothing. It's like a drop in God's hand, and then the sky is so gigantic. I was just overwhelmed with how incredibly big and uh, powerful and wise and beautiful God was, and here he is, like, paying attention to me while I'm sitting here praying, and it was inc- it just blowing my mind how powerful he is. And then later that day I was talking to, to one of the guys and they were telling me about a new sport where people try to um, uh, you know, hold their breath and dive down into water as far as they can go and see how, how many feet deep they can get with just one breath. And uh, there was a woman who went uh, 300 feet down with just one breath, no scuba gear or anything like that. And I guess people who do this sport when they come back up, they have a rope and they're coming back up and sometimes they'll die like 10 feet before they get to the top of the water. And someone's there to put their hand on their mouth and then bring them up and then they resuscitate them and they come back to life. And they they just love the thrill of I dove down, I died and then I came back to life and they're like, I want to do it again. And there's something so thrilling about almost dying and surviving. And the Bible says that's what meeting God is like. I mean, to encounter the living God who is so powerful, who is so holy, who searches our minds and hearts, and and we are totally naked before him, and we're just these small creatures, it's actually possible that you could dwell in his presence and survive. There will be no thrill that any adventure you've been on that will be more wild than that experience. And not only that, you, that will happen over and over again. And he will be blowing your mind over and over again. And, you know, we will spend eternity studying him, learning about him. You know, I've, I've been a Christian for 26 years, and I've studied the Bible day after day after day. And the more I study the Bible, the more I realize how little I know about the Bible. And it's like, there is so much here to study about God. And uh, some of you think, you know, it'll be so nice when we get to heaven, and then I'll just have all my answers or my questions answered. It's like, no, you're not. Why would you have all your questions answered? You are finite, and God is infinite, and you will still be finite. And there will be countless things that you don't know about God. And you will spend all of eternity studying the wonders of who he is while you are in his presence. That is what marriage is about. It's like when you're in a marriage and you spend time learning more and more about your spouse throughout your life. You, we're going to do that with God forever and ever. And so when you think about all that, it makes sense that we will live forever. Some of you might think, you know, what are we going to do for eternity? We're going to run out of things that are interesting. I mean, we're going to get bored at some point. Eternity just scares me to think of forever. But how long would it take to study all just the wonders of this world? All the depths of science. All the, the intricacies of music and food all the different technology that could be developed, the stories that could be written, the arts that could be done, it's just lifetimes upon lifetimes. It takes 10,000 years just to kind of go through the, the knowledge that, that, that humans have, and then you could start over again and say, oh yeah, I studied this 10,000 years ago, let's freshen up on that, and now read it in light of all the 10,000 years of what I've studied. And, uh, and you can restudy those things over and over. There is an eternity of experiences to being human, and then you add to that the study of the creator of himself. That's what we have for eternity. And I'm telling you that if you belong to Jesus Christ, this is your future and your inheritance. A renewed creation, a beautiful and bustling city with no sin, in the intimate love of God for his bride in the marriage of heaven and earth. And if there is anything that could possibly give you courage and perseverance through the struggles of this life, it is this promise. And so today, let us trust in the promise that is ours in Christ Jesus. Let's pray. Father in heaven, uh, we thank you for this uh, tremendous promise. And I. Uh, I pray for each a soul present here. Lord, you know the, um, the trials and hardships that we each face in this life. Would you set this inheritance before our eyes? Not only that your world will be set right, and that we could have a share in that world, but, Lord, that we would dwell with you and we would know you and be known by you. This is our, our deep desire. This is the thrill of our hearts. And so, um, Lord, we pray that you would give us perseverance and faith until we are with you in the age to come. And we ask in Christ's name.